Hello, and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. I'm David Lee, and in this series, we take an in-depth look at some common and not-so-common questions and scenarios that Brodie's lawyers have faced over the years, specifically relating in this series to English law. In each episode, we talk to Brodie's legal experts to discover the insights and experiences that allow them to take the right approach when they're asked, what do I do if? In this particular episode, I'm joined by two Brodie's experts, partner Jared Oyston and senior associate Will Payne, to examine the question, what do I do if I need an interim injunction in England? We look at the need to know information about the law, the procedure and the costs surrounding interim injunctions. Welcome to Jared and to Will. Jared, first of all, this is potentially quite a complex topic. So let's start with the basics. In simple terms, what is an interim injunction? Thanks. So in simple terms, an interim injunction is an order that a party can obtain from the English court in the context of a dispute that requires another party, whether that's an individual or a company, uh, to do something or to not do something, pending a full trial of the dispute between them. And for those who may be more familiar uh, with conducting disputes before the Scottish courts, an interim injunction is essentially the English equivalent of an interim interdict in Scotland. So interim injunctions are distinct from, if you like, more traditional litigation in which a party sues another party for damages, which can take months or, or years. So whereas a damages claim is intended to compensate a party monetarily for harm that it has already suffered, so for example, due to uh, a breach of contract or, or negligence, the purpose of an interim injunction is to prevent harm from occurring or to prevent further harm from occurring, particularly where that harm might be irreparable and not capable of being compensated in due course by an award of damages at trial. And an interim injunction is also distinct from a final injunction. So it's also possible for courts to grant what are called final injunctions at trial. So it may be that um, a court following a, a trial might grant uh, an award of damages um, in, in relation to losses that have been caused by a party's conduct. But if there's a possibility that that conduct is ongoing, they might also uh, make what's called a final injunction, preventing them from ever um, continuing that course of conduct. But what we're talking about today is interim injunctions, which are given at a much earlier stage in the dispute um, and long before you have that sort of full uh, full trial of the rights and wrongs of the dispute. So in summary, it's an order of the court which parties have to comply with and a party which fails to comply with an injunction uh, will be in contempt of court uh, with possible consequences, including fines and, and even imprisonment. So it's a very powerful tool for achieving parties' objectives in, in certain circumstances. Okay, great. Thanks, Jared. And give us some for instances, what kind of circumstances, uh, in what circumstances might an interim injunction be used? So there's a very wide range of circumstances in which a party might seek an interim injunction, but it's fair to say that they'll almost always contain certain similar features. And, and really where interim injunctions are used is where, in the context of a dispute, one party can't afford to sit on its hands and just allow the other party to continue with a course of action or inaction, wait and see if that causes them loss, and then hope to recover uh, damages in due course. And so really the key element is the possibility of a party suffering irreparable harm um, ahead of ahead of trial and judgment. So in terms of examples, a party might a party to a dispute may have reason to believe that its opponent is seeking to take steps to move assets out of 
the jurisdiction so as to ensure that you know a year or two years down the line whenever it may be that a judgment's obtained the claimant isn't able to enforce a judgment against those assets and in that situation obviously the claimant can't just wait and see whether the defendant does that because if they do by that point the the assets have gone and there may be nothing left against which to enforce and in that situation the claimant might seek what's called a freezing injunction over their opponent's assets to preserve them pending trial and judgment uh, to take a, a different example, so let's imagine that a producer of a product enters into a contract with a distributor and the parties get into a dispute about exactly what geographical territories are covered by the distribution agreement. So the producer in that situation might consider that the um, distributor is seeking to sell products in a territory it's not entitled to and they might sue for breach of the uh, distributorship agreement. But it might also seek an interim injunction to stop the distributor from marketing products in those territories if um, that cause of conduct might uh, cause it irreparable harm in the meantime. So, for example, if the distributor's conduct might put the producer in breach of other distribution agreements it has with third parties, or if it might put it in breach of regulatory requirements or licenses, that kind of thing. So an, an interim injunction can be used in a very wide range of contexts, but the circumstances will almost always involve the possibility of a party suffering uh, irremediable harm uh, if action isn't taken quite really quite quickly. Okay, thanks very much. And Finally, Jared, before we bring Will in, there are some different types of interim injunction. Can you just tell us briefly uh, what they are? Yes, so there are a number of different ways of categorizing injunctions, but in broad terms, there are really two main types. So the first is what we call a mandatory injunction, which is an injunction requiring a party to actually do something, so to take positive steps. So a good example of a mandatory injunction is what we refer to as a search and seizure order. And this is where a party is able to convince the court that there's a real risk of their opponent in a dispute taking steps in relation to documents that uh, that will well essentially they're not entitled to take and which will cause them harm so for example they may have reason to believe that their opponent is in possession of documents they're not entitled to so perhaps containing trade secrets or they may have reason to believe that their opponent is intending to destroy documents uh, relevant to the dispute ahead of it getting to trial and in those cases the court might make a search and seizure order that requires the party holding the documents to allow the claimant and its advisors to attend their premises and you know within certain protections retrieve those documents the other main type is what's called a prohibitory injunction and this is an injunction which requires a party not to do something or to stop doing something and a good example of this is you know, what we referred to before, a freezing order. And this is where a party is able to convince the court that the, there's a real risk of their opponent in, in a dispute seeking to dissipate assets. And, and as I mentioned before, in that scenario, the court may be willing to essentially freeze that, that party's assets again with, with certain guardrails in place to preserve those assets ahead of trial. And very often, though, um, a, an interim injunction will include both mandatory and prohibitory elements. So, to give a, a brief example, we recently acted for a client which had leased some quite sophisticated high value equipment to a ship operator. And the ship operator has, over an extended period of time, uh, failed to pay its bills for the equipment and failed to return the equipment when required under the contract. And in that case, we were able to persuade the court that our client faced uh, irreparable harm if the equipment wasn't returned immediately. Um, so without the equipment being returned, the client could would suffer losses in not being able to fulfill contracts to other customers. Um, 
in circumstances where the defendant hadn't been paying its bills, our client could have no confidence that the defendant would be able to pay or willing to pay damages in due course. And our client also had a narrow window window of opportunity while the, the vessel was in port. And the evidence suggested that the defendant was preparing to send the vessel back out to sea and indeed out of the jurisdiction for an extended period of time with the equipment still on board. And for those reasons, the court was willing to grant an injunction which required the defendant to allow our client access to the vessel uh, in the port by a particular date in order to recover its equipment and also prevented the defendant from putting the vessel back to sea in the meantime. So that's an example of an interim injunction which had both mandatory and prohibitory elements. Okay, great, great example. Thank you, Jared. And Will, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what you actually need to do. So if you believe that you need an injunction uh, in some of the circumstances that Jared's outlined, how do you go about applying for it? Of course. Thanks very much, David. Um, so the first point to note really is that, as um, Jared mentioned at the start, um, an interim injunction is an, an interim remedy. So you need to have an underlying cause of action um, to achieve a, a final result at, at trial. An interim injunction isn't a, a freestanding um, form of relief. Um, that said, you, you can issue um, an injunction if you don't have existing proceedings ongoing, as long as you issue um, a claim at the same time or in certain um, really urgent cases, provide to the court an undertaking that you will file a claim form in due course. Um, in terms of what's required in terms of the documents, um, you, you really need three things. Um, the first is, is an application notice which sets out the, the basis of the application, what you want and, and why you want it. Um, you need a draft of the order which sets out um, in precise terms exactly what you what you require. Um, it's important that that's drafted with um, a lot of precision because, as Jared mentioned, uh, if the respondent doesn't comply, it's contempt of court. So you need to make sure that you've um, thought long and hard about exactly what it is that you want um, the, the respondent either to do or, or not to do. Um, and the third thing is your is your evidence in support of the application. Um, this typically uh, takes the form of a, a witness statement um, to which you'd exhibit all of the underlying um, documents that support your, your case. Um, once you've got all that, um, there are different procedures depending on the, the nature and the urgency of the application. So in the ordinary course, um, you would file your documents at court. The court would then set a, a hearing date. You would then file all of your the documents of so the application notice, the draft order and the evidence and serve that on the other side, um, who would then have a chance to respond to that. Um, and then eventually you'd have, you'd have the hearing at which it would be decided whether or not to grant the injunction. Um, as Jared mentioned, there are cases where tipping off the other side that you're going to be doing this would completely defeat the whole the whole purpose of the um, injunction. So if you're um, looking to freeze assets or obtain a search order, obviously you know tipping them off would be completely um, counter to the whole the whole point of the injunction. Um, in that case, you you can apply without giving the other side any notice at all. Um, so in that case, you give the documents to the court the court then sets a hearing date which you attend on your own without the other side being there um, the court then hopefully makes the order um, and you then serve it once you have the order on the other side and there'll be a return date hearing at which the other side participate and get the chance to argue their case um, the, the most important thing and the thing that sometimes um, surprises is clients is if you're doing that um, without notice procedure you have a very onerous duty of full and frank disclosure and what that means is you need to set out in your evidence all of the points that you think the other side could make in their defence if they had had notice and had been given the chance to argue their case. Um, and also points out all of the pieces of your evidence which perhaps don't help your case. 
um, and that's that's a really onerous duty. Um, and, and I've certainly had cases in the past where the other side, thankfully not not us, have been found not to comply with that duty. Um, and not only do the lawyers get a real um, kicking in the in the judgment. Um, in the case that we had, the judge said that even, well, we won the substantive action, but the judge said at the end, even if you, you hadn't won it, then the other side wouldn't have been entitled to an injunction because um, because it had failed to comply with this duty of full and frank disclosure. And and how common is that, uh, Will, to go ahead, you know, to, to make that decision, as you say, uh, and take that onerous path, if you like? Is that common or quite uncommon? Um, well, if, if you want to get um, an injunction, um, such as a freezing injunction or, or a search order where there's, there's no option but, but to go without notice, then, you, then there's no option. Um, if you're, um, if, if there's perhaps a, you know, some, some, I suppose that what can happen sometimes is if you have an application which is, which is very, very urgent, um, so perhaps you don't have time to serve the other side, again, you, you, you've got to do it. Okay. And let's look at the circumstances in which an injunction might actually be granted by a court will. You know, what are the, yeah, what circumstances might a court grant uh, the injunction that you're going for? Sure. So, so again, just to, uh, we've mentioned it a few times, but but the interim nature of these um, remedies means that it isn't a, a full trial of all the issues. There's no cross-examination of witnesses. There's no expert evidence. There's not, it's, it's not considered to be a, a full trial of, of 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 the the merits of the application, um, they're granted on an interim basis to, to hold the ring, and so the, the tests and the circumstances re- reflect that interim nature. Um, the key tests were set out in a case known as American Cyanamid, um, and there's basically sort of two prongs to it. Um, the first hurdle is you have to prove that there's a serious issue to be tried. Um, that's a fairly low bar. It just means that you've got a case um, that can be supported and has a slight uncertainty about the outcome. Um, and that, as I said, that's that's a fairly low bar. The, the second um, aspect of it is usually where the the, the arguments lie, um, and that's known as the balance of convenience test. Um, and essentially, that's the, what that involves is the court evaluating who would be the most harmed if an incorrect decision was made. So, in other words, if an interim injunction were to be granted now, but it was held at trial later that it should not have been granted, what would the harm to the respondent be? And conversely, if an interim injunction were not to be granted, but it was told at a full trial that it should have been, what harm would have been caused to the applicant? So it's a, it's a balanced test as to who would suffer the most if the injunction were or were not to be granted. Um, the, the third um, point just that, that's important to bear in mind is that an applicant will need to give what's called a cross-undertaking in damages if they want to obtain an injunction. And essentially, that's that's the applicant saying, I will compensate you, the respondent, for any losses that you suffer if this injunction is granted. And actually, it's turned out that um, it shouldn't have been granted. So you're applying for this remedy on on an interim kind of short-term urgent basis. You get it. And and sometimes um, that can be very onerous on the the respondent. Um, They've got to comply with this order. Um, And if it turns out that actually this order should never have been granted, it's incumbent upon the applicant to compensate the respondent for any losses that they suffer as a result. Okay, and thanks very much, Will. And coming back to you, Jared, those of us like me who who don't know much about injunctions probably occasionally read in the paper or see on their favourite news website that there's been some kind of urgent legal move involving a high-profile case with a celebrity or whatever. There's, There's always this sense of urgency. So how common 
is it for injunctions to be deployed urgently and how quickly can they be deployed in that case? Yeah, so it's it is very common for injunctions to be deployed urgently. Um, and in fact, delay to an injunction application will often in itself be fatal. You might have it otherwise a good case, but if the court can see that actually you sat for six months wondering whether or not you um, ought to bring this application, that in itself may be fatal uh, because uh, obviously uh, an interim injunction, you, hopefully you can see, will have um, potentially quite uh, intrusive and onerous impacts on um, on, a, on a defendant who hasn't yet had the, the opportunity to have a full full day in court to present their case. So the court is very wary of um, of, of granting these kind of injunctions uh, without due cause. And, you know, the mere fact that you've perhaps, you know, sat on your hands for six months while you make your mind up might be enough to convince the court that actually you can wait another year or two years or whatever it may be um, to, to have a full trial and, 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 and hopefully seek damages. So, they they are almost always very very urgent um and interim injunctions can be obtained very quickly um so by their very nature um they will um always move much faster than sort of an ordinary court claim for damages um and as will has explained the court essentially employs a much more streamlined process in terms of the evidence albeit with uh, appropriate protections for the defendant so in a case where an interim injunction is sought it will usually either be obtained or refused in a matter of, of days essentially and in the most urgent cases uh, they can be dealt with on an almost same day basis uh, duty judges are available overnight and at weekends to deal with the, the really types of pressing cases where a delay of even a day or two might cause irreparable harm to the to the claimant. And what are the cost implications of that, Jared? If you're applying for an injunction at pace, uh, does that cost a lot more? Yeah, I mean, I think inevitably seeking an interim injunction is uh, is a costly process. As you'll appreciate from what Will's outlined in terms of the the procedure, the process of obtaining an injunction places a really quite considerable onus on the claimant. It essentially has to get over some relatively onerous hurdles in a very short space of time. Um, it has to provide comprehensive evidence as to how the parties have reached the point they've reached, what's likely to happen next if the order isn't granted in terms of the defendant's conduct and its impact on them. That obviously, as Will says, includes satisfying the duty of full and frank disclosure, setting out to some extent the other side's position. Counsel will need to be instructed often on short notice to get ready for a hearing um, in short order. And all of that means that interim injunctions are inevitably expensive. Um, so there's always a, a cost implication for essentially conducting what is really a mini piece of litigation condensed into a very, very short period of time. Yeah. Okay, thanks very much. And Will, let's move forward a step. So if an injunction is granted, what happens next? Yeah, so the first um, thing to do once an injunction has been granted is that you need to um, arrange for the order to be served personally on the respondent. Um, because injunctions carry um, strict penalties for, for breaches, um, it's not sufficient simply to, to send them by post or, or to send them to the solicitors. Um, there's a requirement to physically um, serve the order um, upon the uh, respondent. Um, as Jared mentioned at the top, breach, breach of an injunction um, is contempt of court and so potentially a criminal offence to, to breach it. Um, once you've served it, um, it, it really depends on what the nature of the injunction is. Um, there are some cases where an interim injunction will effectively dispose of the whole dispute between um, the parties, although there needs to be an underlying cause of action often 
the injunction itself is really what what where the battleground is and, and once you've got that or not got that the underlying case falls away um in others um the underlying case will proceed to a to a full trial at which it will be determined whether or not the injunction was appropriate to have been granted or not um and then the the other matter i suppose to do with is, is costs um again the court has the power to award costs of the interim injunction at, at the hearing um sometimes they're reserved until the final um trial to see w- what the position is at, at trial and what if you decide will that an interim injunction isn't the way forward what other alternatives do you have uh, without if you like pressing the expensive nuclear button yeah so um as with all um litigation and, and applications for litigation it's always a good idea to to assess properly at the start before you commence the action what what the alternatives are um in the case of injunctions um the the step that should be considered really before um making an application if time allows is whether or not you can um extract undertakings from the your opponent um and what this effectively is 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 the and the, you would write to the um, to your opponent and ask them to give you an undertaking either to do or not to do the um, the thing that you would consider applying for an injunction for. Um, this can be done just in, in letters and correspondence and in some situations um, parties may be content to rely on that. Um, there are situations, perhaps if you're dealing with someone who you, you don't trust, where you might want to get the other side to give those undertakings to the court directly which means they carry with them the sanctions that i outlined previously um so it's always worth exploring in, in pre-action correspondence the possibility of retaining undertakings which would you know mean you don't need to go through the whole process of, of getting an injunction um in terms of, of other options um you can sit back and wait for the the breach to occur and then consider a claim for damages at the end um as part of a final trial um equally you can decide just to go for a final injunction and not not stop the the, um the wrong in 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 an interim basis um sometimes that occurs when parties are worried about giving a cross undertaking or or they're um, worried for some other reason about going for an interim case um and of course there's always um things such as mediation and, and alternative dispute resolution if in appropriate cases that's that's appropriate Okay, thanks very much, Will. And, and Jared, can you just kind of summarise now what is your advice to clients who might need an interim injunction and might need it quickly? So I think the the key things that we would say is that, first of all, um, when a party is uh, suffering um, or is concerned that they're going to suffer loss as a result of the action or inaction of another party, then interim injunctions should always be considered that they are very powerful tools for preventing harm from occurring pending trial. Um, I think hopefully one of the things that will also come across from this um, this discussion is that they can also have really quite draconian effects, uh, which the courts are reluctant to impose unless there's a really quite compelling case which justifies the, in- the intrusive effects that interim injunctions can have on on a defendant and its and its business. And therefore, um, whilst they are a powerful tool and they are often a, the, the absolutely right answer for a client, they should never be undertaken lightly. Uh, an interim injunction application has to clear a number of fairly high hurdles in a short time frame. That makes them expensive and there can be real consequences for parties who are found to have sought an injunction without proper justification. 
And just to go back to something that, that Will said, uh, that it can sometimes be difficult to uh, for parties uh, who are looking at a possible injunction, who are who are in the heat of a situation about trying to stop a particular thing from happening, it can often be slightly confusing for them as to why they're having to jump through some of the hoops they're having to jump through. You, you get you can you can have a, a client who might be there at you know eleven o'clock at night. Um, you know, scratching their head as to why they're, they're 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 signing off on a witness statement, which includes three or four pages explaining what we think the other side's position is going to be. They can find it difficult to accept why uh, they are having to give an undertaking in damages when, from their perspective, you know, they're not the bad guy. Um, but those are all about um, basically providing a, a basic level of protection to uh, to the to the defendant who, who who will only have a limited opportunity to to put their case forward. So what all of that means is that a party considering an interim injunction will have to be ready to devote significant resource to, over, to it over a short, intense period. That includes uh, obviously legal costs, but it includes access to witnesses. It includes access to key decision makers in the business uh, over over a short time frame. So it's a significant commitment uh, for a party uh, to embark upon. So parties considering seeking an interim injunction should always seek legal advice as early as possible. Um, not only as to the strength of their case, but also to help guide them, uh, guide them through what is quite, it's fair to say, uh, a, an intense and onerous process. Great stuff. Thanks uh, very much to Jared and to Will for their insights today. So interim injunctions, uh, a powerful tool, but can be definitely the word of the day is onerous. Uh, there's a very, very high bar to reach. Uh, they're not cheap. You've got to be sure that you want to go down this route. Uh, but if you do decide to go down it, be quick, because if you snooze, you might lose. So thanks again, Jared and Will, for their brilliant insights on Podcast by Brodies. Podcast by Brodies is the place where some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about the big issues in developments having an impact on the legal sector and what that means for organisations, businesses and individuals across the UK. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to Podcast by Brodies on all your favourite podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com.